welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us today. Welcome back if you are a regular listener. And if you're here for the first time, it's great to have you join us too. Either way, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss out on any of the amazing speakers that we bring to you every week. And if you could also take a minute to leave us a rating and review, we would be very appreciative. To do that, all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, select ratings and reviews, and write a review. It's as simple as that. Okay, so on with today's show. I like to say that all of my guests have something special that they bring to the podcast. Most of them are hairdressers or have a hairdressing background or started out as hairdressers and then maybe have gone off in another direction. But sometimes there are people in our industry that have made a huge impact and contribution to hairdressing, even though they've never stood behind the chair with a column of clients. My guest today is one such person. His name is Wynne Claybore, and he has made and continues to make an extraordinary contribution to the hairdressing industry. Amongst many other things, he's a proud father, motivational speaker, podcaster, author of the book Be Nice or Else, and the dean and co-founder of Paul Mitchell Schools. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss what leadership is, who's responsible for motivation, the importance of consciously creating a culture, and we even briefly touch on Gilligan's Island and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Wynn. Thanks, Anthony. It's really a pleasure. You know, I've seen you interviewed the planet. And I was just waiting for this phone call. Like, when is it my turn? So thank you for finally making it my turn. (laughs) Well, I I have been, um, you know, I've been putting you aside. I'm following in your your footsteps. You've been doing this a lot longer than what I have uh, in terms of the podcasting. And I want to talk to you about that, actually, because, uh, yeah, you, you, you started. I've actually got some of your... Uh, cassette tapes. So, you know, I don't know if it first came out on cassette. I was actually. Yeah, do you have any of the eight track tapes that, that no, came out, you know, 50 years ago? So you no, actually no? did okay. it on eight track as well, did you? No, no, I'm not that old. <laughs> cassette, yes, but not but not eight track. Thank, thank, thank goodness. Okay. Uh, the first ones I've got are on cassette and I know they're in the garage somewhere. So anyway. Okay. So, um, When, like me, you've been in the industry a long time and uh, you've been interviewed many, many times. And I'm determined to ask you at least one question that you haven't been asked before. Uh, Are you okay with that? You can ask me about my beauty regimen. Nobody's ever asked me that. I don't know why. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a choice, okay? I've got two questions written down here. Let's let's refer to them as question A and question B. And this is really just a bit of fun. It's nothing too serious. Uh, Which one do you want, question A or question B? Uh, let's go with B. Let's go with B. Question B is, who was your childhood celebrity crush? Oh, my gosh. Childhood celebrity crush. <laughs> uh, no, you, okay, you're right. Nobody has asked me that question before. I, I'm, I'm almost, uh, it, it had to be Marianne <laughs> from Gilligan's Island. Did, did, did you know that show, Gilligan's yeah. Island? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where I grew up, we saw that. Mary Ann from Gilligan's Island. Yeah, okay. you know, she was she yeah. was just 
sweet and nice and approachable and a little bit sexy if a if a young boy at my age could could think in those terms. I don't know, yeah. but okay. Well, that's a start. Uh, question A was going to be, uh, what's your go to karaoke song? Would you rather have had that one? No, no, no. I don't. <laughs> okay. All right, Gilligan's Island. We're away. Okay, <laughs> let's let's start with an overview of your background. I'm sure that all of our American listeners know who you are, but you maybe won't be known by some of our audience outside the U.S. So, who is Win Claybor? Give us your sort of you know two or three minute backstory, and then we can dig into things. Okay. Um, I uh, I've been in the industry uh, almost 40 years, but I'm not a hairdresser. Never been a hairdresser. Uh, never went to college. Not one day of college. I, I barely, and I mean barely, graduated from high school. Uh, apparently, they want you to show up. <laughs> I, I was busy, I told them. Uh, now, here I am that many years later, 40 years later, not a hairdresser, never went to college, but uh, I make a lot of money. I get to have fun every single day. I've been embraced in the beauty industry. I love what I do. I love who I do it with, who I do it for. Uh, and I've never been held back in the industry. Nobody's ever said, no, you can't do that because you don't have the license or you don't have the certification or the education or the degree. Nobody's ever said no to me. Even, even doing the podcasts that I do, uh, of course, the first person that I asked to interview was Vidal Sassoon because I thought, if he says yes, who's going to tell me no? Yeah. And, and he said yes. So nobody's ever turned me down in anything that I ever wanted to do. And I have friends who are in other industries who tell me the exact opposite. They tell me the opposite that every time that they want to move up or ask a question or ask for an opportunity, the immediate automatic answer is always no, 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 no. And they have to fight every step of the way. And I think it's the opposite in the beauty industry. So here, so here I am that many years later, still, still in love with what I do. So how did you manage to end up in the salon business? Uh, I had a bit of success in um, a little tiny career that I had. And so I had some money that I wanted to invest in some type of a business. I always knew that I would work for myself. Even as a, a young child, I knew that that would be my path. And uh, I had friends that were hairdressers and they talked to me in opening up a little salon. It was <laughs> three chair salon located in the basement of a, of a business building, an office building in downtown Provo, Utah. Our rent was $205 a month. So, it, but it was, it was a magical, magical time. And yes. because it was brand new, I was in my, my 20s. I was the shampoo boy. I was the receptionist. I was the, I, I remember even towels. I couldn't afford a, a washer and a dryer in the salon, nor was there space to have one. Uh, so I would have to set my alarm clock every two hours throughout the night to, to make sure that I was getting all the towels cleaned and dried before the, the next business day. Uh, and some of the people that I worked with way back then, my, my very first stylist that I hired that many years ago uh, is still with me to this day. She's now a very successful business owner along with me in my school division. And uh, it was a magical, magical time. We all kind of started off with each other and the things that we learned and gained are still serving us to this day. Okay, fantastic. Now I know we've you've you know you've done so many things in your life, and there's so many different questions I want to ask you about. But you just touched on uh, the school business. So, for our uh, non-American audience, they may may not have any idea of what the Paul Mitchell schools are all about. So, uh, how many schools are there, and and how many uh, students go through the Paul Mitchell schools every year? We have about 110 Paul Mitchell schools. 
throughout the country. We do have a few internationally, um, but mostly in the U.S. And about 15,000 students are currently enrolled in our schools. Um, and I got into the school of business, I guess it's been 38 years ago. And I got into the school of business mainly out of default because I, I found being in the salon business first, I found that the people that I was interviewing to come and work as a stylist in my salon after spending a year in school were not at all ready to compete and work in the in the salon industry. And I thought, mm. you know, who 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 knows, you know, that 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 naivete. I, I thought, well, the best way to train them would be to train them myself. And mm. so I, I got into the school business and to be honest with you, Anthony, of course, if you quote me on this, I'll deny that I said it, although I'm <laughs> saying it to everybody right now. You know, had I not gotten into the school business, meaning had I only stayed in the salon business, I'm not sure that I would still be in the beauty industry today. What really got me to fall in love with the beauty industry was the education side of it. Not yep. so much the salon business side of it. It was the education side of it. I just love, love, love working with that brand new generation entering the beauty industry and the whole culture that's surrounding uh, education and growth and learning, which, by the way, I feel that that culture can and should exist in every single salon. When a mm. salon still lives by that culture and has that belief system that even though we've been doing hair for 20, 30 years, there's still stuff to learn. We still need to go to education. There's still opportunity for growth and learning here. I think that's very attractive. Uh, I, I, I know some 18-year-olds who already know it all, <laughs> which is very unattractive. You are also very widely known as a motivational speaker and, and not just within the hairdressing industry. I know you work outside of the hairdressing industry and in lots of other fields as well as a speaker. Uh, how, how did you, how did your career take you in that direction? That was again, purely by accident, I guess, uh, you, you know, for us to, to live our lives that way, that everything happens for a reason that we are meant to be in certain circles and certain situations. And there's a, a purpose. And so just to always be open and, and, uh, and ready for those opportunities. And uh, my, my friend and mentor, Tony Robbins says that we are motivated through inspiration or desperation. And for me, many years ago, uh, in the mid eighties, I was desperate, even though I was already in business, I already had salons and schools. I was desperate. I was miserable. And it was that desperation that got me motivated to seek out mentors. And so and I'm not a big reader. I, I wrote a book, but I don't read. <laughs> there you go. And, and, but how I always gained my knowledge and my information was through motivational speakers. And I would, in conversations with people, I was always tracking down successful people and I had to sit in their audience. And not, not only was it enough for me to sit in their audience along with a thousand other people listening to these wonderful mentors and speakers on the stage, um, I, had to, I had to meet them. And so I would sneak backstage. I would stalk these people. Literally, I was I was like a motivational speaker stalker. And it, and it was through that exchange and getting to know these people. And uh, that's how I started my master's podcast, because I was asking them a lot of questions and eventually added a microphone to the occasion. Mm -hmm. But it was it was by by researching and really getting to know these wonderful speakers and mentors. And I could, I could drop names and, and tell you some of them I met, some of them I've never met before, but I could tell you specifically 20, 30, 40 years ago, what these people taught me and, and where I was in the instant, 
in the moment when their words captured me and it was a, a before and an after moment for me. It was a complete paradigm shift for me where I went from this type of a person to that person because of the words uh, and messages from my, my mentors and my heroes. And so, and to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. So yeah. to, to, to answer the question, I was taking in so much information that the only way that I could validate the information was to talk about it. So I would come home from a two-day retreat for, uh, with a mentor and my staff would ask me, my team would ask me, oh my gosh, what did you learn in those last two days? And I would spend the next 30 minutes or two hours talking about what I learned. Oh my gosh, I learned this. I learned this. They taught me this. They had us go through this experience. And it was in that process of explaining, trying to repeat the information that actually turned into an opportunity to be a speaker myself. People say, gosh, you're really good at explaining this information. Maybe you should come and explain it to my team. And uh, I remember the first time somebody said, well, what do you charge? I'm like, charge? <laughs> I, I can charge for this? You know, $50, $50 for a seminar. <laughs> well, those days are gone. <laughs> yeah, those are gone. Thank, thank, thank goodness. You know, and some yeah. of them were free, free. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do yeah, this yeah. for free. Because I just yeah. loved it. I, I loved sharing information. This exchange that you and I are having right now, I, I, I love this process. I love the idea of conversing and exchanging ideas. And um, I, I think, which for a lot of people is a lost art. There, there is not this exchange. It's, it's you know, behind a keyboard or behind a, a device where we just post stuff. We're not, yeah. we're not having conversations. We're texting or we're attacking and it's, and is done anonymously and, it, and is done viciously and, and it's meant to offend rather than to learn from each other. You and I can completely disagree, but we're having a conversation and I'm going to walk away from this conversation, whether it's at a, a dinner party or a podcast, I'm going to walk away thinking, you know what? I never thought of it that way. Anthony put a, a, a thought in my head that had not been there before. And maybe I need to change. Maybe I need to pivot. Maybe I need to think about that. That's why I love Clubhouse. And I know you're on Clubhouse quite a lot as well. It's a, it's such a great forum to not just be posting a picture or a meme or whatever it is, but to actually engage with people and have conversations and to connect with people all over the world so that you really know them and, and not just a, you know, a, a like and an emoji and a, a Facebook thread, but to actually really engage and have great dialogue with people. It's a, it's a fantastic um, platform. Uh, you mentioned your master's um, uh, series before. I think you're the you're, you're the original who started, uh, and now there's this avalanche of people, me included, who are also in this um, podcast space. And I know, you know, my early masters that I've got from you are on a cassette. Uh, so they go way back to when I first started hairdressing at the end of the 70s, you know, and you've interviewed on there some incredible people over the years. Do you have a favorite? out of all the interviews you've done, I'd say one that has stood out for you or one that you particularly remember? Well, there's some, oh, absolutely. There are some obvious ones, such as Vidal Sassoon. Mm. And as I mentioned before, he was the first person that I interviewed because I, I knew if he said yes to me, that nobody would ever turn me down. And, and again, now doing this, uh, what, 22 years, even before there was the term podcast, I was interviewing yeah. people and and documenting their stories, documenting their ideas. And I'm proud to say that uh, some of those people that I have 
documented. They're not even with us anymore. They, they have passed on. And, and yet mm. I have this recording of their voices and their ideas. And I, I love that I have that history in that library. Vidal Sassoon was an obvious favorite and not just because of, of the name, because I've interviewed some famous people that I probably would never want to promote again. But Vidal was, I could, I could be in a room with Vidal Sassoon. There could be a thousand people in that room. But if he's talking to you, he's, he's right there with you. He, he, mm-hmm. has, he has no idea what's going on around him. Everybody's trying to tug at Vidal Sassoon, but no, he is one-on-one focused on you. And he's focused on, on, on what's important to you. He's not talking about his money or his accolades or his fame or no, mm. he's, he's genuinely interested in you and asking questions. And that was, that was uh, at the time when I got to know Vidal Sassoon that many years ago, I really needed that information because I wanted to have power and influence myself. I wanted mm. to have a large circle of influence. And so for him to teach me way back then that my influence uh, was not coming from a place of ego because because ego will absolutely shut down close down the the minds of the students you we've all sat in the audience with a an, an egotistical speaker or hairdresser on the stage and you, you almost don't even want to learn from them their ego is so big it's yeah. all about them it's not about teaching or, or sharing or engaging it's about validating their own <laughs> confidence in their self-esteem. And that's exhausting to try to learn from somebody like that. And uh, Vidal was just not like that at all. So that's a, absolutely a favorite. I had another another favorite. I, I had the chance to interview uh, a woman who was the, the president of Southwest Airlines. So at the time, she was the president of Southwest Airlines. And man, what a powerhouse. And, and when I interviewed her, uh, that was the time when there was a, uh, lots of the airlines were not profitable. Um, major recession. And and yet Southwest Airlines was one of the few airlines that was still profitable. And so Mm -hmm. everybody was looking to her. How are you pulling this off? How are you you doing this? And I I watched her in her office and she was she was a chain smoker and she would show up in her house slippers to corporate offices there in Dallas, (laughs) Texas. And and people rallied around her. They genuinely loved this woman, whether it was the mechanics who worked there or the pilots or, you know, the office people, everybody genuinely learned, loved this woman. And so to, to have that exchange with her was pretty magical as well. And, and I could, there's dozens, dozens more yeah. that I could share with you. Yeah, I, I listened to that one. There was one, for some reason, I remember one. I know a lot of them are quite emotional and, uh, <laughs> Have you met me? I, I, I cried during Golden Girls, so that's, that's I was, the reason I, why. Exactly. I was trying to find the right words for that. But, yeah, there's often tears in them. Um, and I suggest that they're not just your tears and the guest tears, but, um, you know, the people listening are sometimes reduced to tears. And for some reason, I remember a young lady that you were interviewing. You may or may not remember this particular one. And the reason I remember it is because of a phrase she used. She was talking about mental health and suicide in particular. And uh, she was in tears quite a lot. Uh, you were in tears quite a lot. She was often, you know, she, she was obviously had gone through some severe trauma in her life. But she was talking about suicide, I think, in relation to her brother or her father. And she used this expression, which I've, I've so often reflected on, and it was that you shouldn't say that people committed suicide. You should say that they died by suicide because you don't 
commit a heart attack or commit cancer, you die from cancer or you die from, you know, a heart, heart disease. And she was saying that you, you, that's how we should talk about suicide because suicide is a mental health issue. And funnily enough, I was just talking about that with someone just recently that I had on the podcast who has a, um, a barber's collective, um, you know, to raise awareness for prevention of suicide and stuff. And so she came up again in that. And I've, I've often reflected back on that. So there's been many of them. I found them all, you know, fantastic, very informative, very educational and, and you know, a great resource for me and hairdressers everywhere. So so thank you for well, you know, thank, for thank you. That. And. And thank you for bringing up that particular interview, because as you and I are recording this right now, it is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm. And, you know, there's just such the stigma related to mental illness, which uh, one in four suffer from some type of of mental health challenge, suicide, depression, bipolar, addiction, self-harm. It's a very, very lengthy list. And and yeah what do they say? Mental illness is the one disease where people are mad at you for having it. They're not, they're not mad at you for having cancer. There's no Mm. shame in saying I have cancer or my brother has cancer, but the shame and the stigma of saying, I, I lost a brother to suicide. People don't want to talk about it. And so I, I, I think it's a very, very important topic. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know that you very openly talk about this, uh, you know, often, so it's not being overly personal. And you, you talk about a time in your life where you got off track and you got into drugs. And I really admire the fact that you do talk about that rather than pretend that it didn't happen, because the fact that you can talk openly about it, I think is really good for a lot of people here that, you know, life is a journey and that even if you do go off the tracks, that doesn't mean that it's final. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a stage in your journey that uh, isn't uh, irreversible. So can, can you talk to us about that time in your life? Yeah, absolutely, Anthony. I, I uh, have no problem talking about my past drug addiction. I, I'm coming up on 20 years clean. And um, I'll tell you, when I, when I first became clean, it was not my intention to talk about it. I would, there was still a lot of shame there. And I was going to hide that because I was already a speaker. I was already a business owner and respected in the beauty industry. And yet I got off track and, and that became my reality. And uh, by the way, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to be the best at it. So I was a really good drug addict, by the way. I <laughs> just want you to know, I, you know, all in there. And so it was a very serious time, but I, and I was on stage. I remember this. I was only a couple of months clean and by accident on a stage in front of about 500 people, uh, this came out. It came out on stage that I was newly, just recently clean off of drugs. And there was like this gasp in the audience. And I remember ending my presentation and walking backstage thinking to myself, what have I done? I can't believe that I just admitted that, that I blurted that out, that I exposed myself and I was embarrassed. And but then what happened was a lot of people found their way backstage. A lot of people came to, to, to find me. And I, I was, again, embarrassed to, to face them. But their, their response to me was one of, of hope and gratitude and, and, and humility, almost like, gosh, Wynn, thank you for sharing that because, you know, you're, you're, you seem like you're doing okay and maybe there's hope for me or maybe there's hope for my brother who's struggling, struggling with, with an addiction right now. And what that taught me was uh, the value of sharing stories. Uh, it's, it's so easy for us to just dictate 
doctrine or principles from a book. Uh, but when we share our own personal stories, and for me, it's not just the, the story of being clean off of drugs. I also lost a brother to suicide. That's one of my stories. And so, of course, I'm very open and honest in sharing that story along with backing it up with, with research and what I've learned and gained and the organizations and the mentors that I've aligned myself with, both for addiction as well as mental illness. And uh, those are all stories that I know help people. And you don't have to be a speaker standing on a stage or an author of a book to have the opportunity to tell these stories. I, I just think that the more transparent we are, the more real we are when we engage with people through our storytelling. Uh, those are brilliant mentors and leaders. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for asking me about that. I, 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 especially with the generation that I'm, that I work with on a, on a daily basis, I think that that's a very, very important topic. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, it's too often sort of ignored in an underground conversation. So uh, congratulations for, for 20 years clean. That's a, a great achievement. So, you know, I work um, at it every single day. There, there are people that I connect with literally on a daily basis. I have about two or three different people that every single day I'm connecting with one of them or, or two of them or three of them. Uh, I support them in their sobriety and they support me. And, it, and it, that's truly, truly what it takes. I, I interviewed a guy, Jason Schneidman. Uh, you know, he he he's backstage doing the hair at the the Tony Awards, and then while everybody is going to the party afterwards, he's hitting the streets to do hair for the homeless. He's like, "When if I if I go to that party, I'm going to use. If I go to that party, I'm going to drink, mm-hmm. and to to maintain my sobriety, I'm not going to that party. I'm leaving, and I'm hitting the streets to use my skills and my talents to." to do hair for the homeless and to make a difference. And that's how I stay sober and clean and focused and on track. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the win I know is a very different person to that. You are incredibly disciplined about your work ethic, your time, and noticeably your health and fitness. So talk to us a little bit about the importance of self-discipline and focused and and also being prepared to say no, because I know that since you had uh, Sophia, who's now, I think you said nine years of age, you know, that you say you're, you're very protective of uh, your, your life and that you compartmentalize it as to, you know, this is important to me and no amount of money can, can buy that. So talk to us about that focus and self-discipline that you have in every area of your life now. Well, uh, first of all, becoming a dad, I tell people that had I not become a dad, I would just be a rich old asshole. I hope I'm okay in saying that, <laughs> but I, I really believe it's true. You know, she, she, she brought this, uh, this balance to my world where I, I, I think it was Candy Shaw who in a podcast recently said that she years ago decided to give herself the gift of saying no. And so when my daughter was born, yeah, it, it became all about my daughter. I moved my office to my home. I didn't travel for a couple of years. Uh, I completely changed my whole schedule and agenda and priority and focus because uh, I want to be a good dad. I, 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 I just really, really want to be a good dad. Little did I know of all of the other blessings that would come along with that in terms of my own sanity, my own happiness, my own health and wellness, you know, to be a good dad 
you know, part of being a good dad means that when she gets up at six o'clock in the morning, some days she loves being up at six o'clock, getting ready for school. And she's all excited. And other days she is not, she does not want to get out of bed. Well, it's my job as her dad to, to wake up every single day, making that choice. It's not just something automatic. Sometimes it's a choice that we have to make. Today's going to be a great day. Well, it's my job to teach her that. Well, how can I be trying to teach her to have a, that choice that to, it's going to be a great day if I'm still trying to wake up myself, if I, if I haven't already been prepared uh, to, to fully awake and fully functioning by the time I pull her out of bed. And so, I, I yeah, I'm disciplined. I get up at four o'clock in the morning. I need two full hours of waking up and having coffee and listening to music and sitting by the by the fire and, and reading and doing all of those things that get me ready for my day so that by the time I get her up at six o'clock, you know, I'm good to go. You know, we we demand a lot of ourselves. Uh, we demand a lot of ourselves in, in business, in our personal lives. And then we turn around and we demand a lot of our people. We want our people. I know in my company, I'm, I'm always asking people to raise money and raise awareness. And we have to give back and, and donate uh, our time and our talents and our funds. And But if, if people don't feel good about themselves, if they're not working on themselves, if, if they're not on track with their health, their wellness and their relationships and their marriages, you know, how, how can they turn around and help other people? How can they then have the, 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 uh, the, the, the needed resources and the, the drive and the motivation to, to help other people? And so I just feel like I have to be that, that type of a leader where I'm just as concerned with their, their marriages and their health and their wellness and the well-being of my team as I am with being concerned with their performance and how much money they're bringing into the company. Yeah. Okay. I, I've heard you talk a lot about motivation and you, you talk about motivation in a really good way. There's one particular story you told, and it was about someone asking one of your guest speakers at an event that you were holding. And I believe that the guest speaker was Magic Johnson, the basketball player. And they asked a question about how do you motivate your team, which is something that I often get asked. Can, can you remember the answer that Magic Johnson had for that? Because I Oh, absolutely. Good, because I've been dining out on that answer for a long time. So. Yeah, what, 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 what a great that? guy. You know, I lo- love working with Magic. He's, he's, he's an amazing guy. And uh, his, his answer basically was, really, that's not my job. It's not my job to motivate my team, right? I mean, did, did you get paid on time? Are the lights on in the building, right? Did I, was I late in, in paying you, right? Did, did I provide a, a clean, safe environment for you? Meaning that that's what I did. That was my job of what I created as your boss. Uh, it's your job to, to show up with that motivation. And, and I, we've all had those people, right? Oh my gosh, when I'm so glad you're here this morning because I've had the worst day. I had the worst night and I'm so glad that you're here because now you can motivate me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. That's my job to motivate. And and I want to ask the questions. Okay. uh, What time did you go to bed? (laughs) What were you watching as you fell asleep last night? Because I can tell you what I was watching or what I was not watching. I I didn't fall asleep watching uh, the real housewives of Beverly Hills. Right. Which would then put me in a horrible, horrible mindset. Right. I didn't, I didn't fall asleep watching some slasher movie. Right. I didn't wake up watching the news you know, giving myself the, the mindset that this is a cold, bitter world that I now belong to, you know, so it's, it's like, wait a minute, you, you have responsibility here too, 
right? Were you up at 4 a.m.? Did, did you get eight hours of sleep? Did you eat a good diet? Did you go to the gym? Did you call your mother to tell her that you, that you love her? Did you do all of those things? Because guess what? I did all of those things so that when I arrive here at work, I can be the type of person that you need me to be, that I want to be so that I can, I, I can have that influence, so that I can be a good mentor. But guess what? You have that same responsibility too. I mean, I love this topic of, of happiness and personal responsibility and what it takes to get there because there's a, there's a big myth about happiness, right? There's, the, there's this myth that it just takes one thing, right? And, and if I could just get that one thing, like I just, if I could just uh, get the, the, the right car, the right paycheck, if I could just find that one and only romantic person that's going to complete me. And if I just got that one thing, then my entire life would be better. My entire life would have bliss and happiness. And that's the myth. If you ask a successful hairdresser to name one thing, just one thing that you do, Anthony, to make you financially successful, where clients are loyal to you, you only get one. You couldn't name one thing. What could you name? A whole bunch of little tiny things that you do. Well, I give them the best massage in town. My salon plays really cool music. The salon is clean all the time. We are constantly updating ourselves with education and going to training as a team. As a team, we volunteer for the cancer walk. We raise money. We raise awareness, right? We serve gourmet coffee. It's, it's a whole bunch of little tiny things that you do consistently. And it's the culmination of all those little tiny things that you do every single day that add up to financial success and a loyal clientele. Well, it's the same thing for happiness. It's not one thing. It's a whole bunch of little tiny things that you can do that you need to do every single day. And by doing all those little tiny things consistently, what does that add up to? a life of happiness, a life of bliss. And the good news here is that you are in control of all those little tiny things. I can go to the gym every single day. I can call my mom every single day. I can choose what I eat, what I don't eat. I can choose to get eight hours of sleep every single night. I can choose to make my daughter the priority. I can choose to sign up and be the room parent in her school. And that's more important than signing up for another career opportunity. Why? Because I made that choice of being a really good dad. And being a really good dad gives me credibility to then be a really good boss, to be a really good citizen, to be a really good human being. And so um, it's a whole bunch of little tiny things. And, and I'm very, very disciplined with those little tiny things. I, I do them consistently. Yeah. Okay. You're always so outrageously positive, uh, which, which is a trait that I really admire. Okay. What I want to ask you though, is how do you balance? And, and I'm, you know, maybe there's another side of you that is not outrageously positive that is kept, you know, for very few people to see because we've all got to have a dummy split, at, you know, at times. But what I want to ask you is this, how do you balance that positivity with objectively looking at people and situations and maybe not seeing other possible outcomes that aren't positive. I'm trying not to say the word <laughs> negative here. No, I know. I know I, yeah, I, I totally hear you. Um, well, first of all, again, let me be transparent and, and, and be honest with people that this does not come naturally to me. Being, being, being happy does not come naturally to me. Being a visionary, being positive is something that I have to work at. 
every single day. Again, it's, it's back to that, that list of all the little tiny things that I have to do. It's not because I'm inspired to do those things. I'm desperate to do those things so that I'm a good human being, that I'm, that I'm happy, that, that I am a good dad. Um, but when I do get off track, you better believe it's a very, very small circle of people who will see that side of me. Uh, what, do, do my students see that negative side of me? No. You know, when I'm in that mindset, I know that I should not respond to that posted on social media. I just know it's not going to go well. <laughs> I, it's, it's not my place. I just need to, to walk away from it. I need to call a very small circle. And maybe that's my answer to all of this is that my circle, the older that I get, um, my circle is, is just smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a very large, I, I know a lot of people. I, I want to engage with a lot of people. I want to expand my circle of influence. You know, I, I want to have thousands and thousands of followers, so to speak. But my circle, my inner circle is very, very small and it's getting smaller every day. And I'm proud of that. And, and that was also advice that I got from some mentors. When shrink it down. You need to shrink it down. So in, um, in Paul Mitchell period, there, people often talk about the amazing culture that exists within the company. You see it in the schools, you see it in the product side of the business. Um, I haven't been into your offices and seen your team on the school side of the business, but I'm assuming that there is that great culture that is everywhere else. So how do you, how do you create culture? First of all, uh, you have to decide what the culture looks like, because if you don't decide, then the culture will be decided for you. See, when two people come together, there's a culture. Decide what that culture looks like and feels like, or again, it's going to be decided for you. And oftentimes, uh, by default, the type of culture that then uh, is created is one that's toxic and full of gossip, and it's it's negative, and it's competitive and it's me against you, even though we're working in the same salon. Um, and so you have to make a decision, make a choice that that it's going to be different from that, which which requires conversation. It requires communication. We try to make it as simple as possible that there are three basic human needs. The first basic human need is people need to feel safe. People need to feel safe. When people do not feel safe, do we bring out the best in them? No, no. If, if, I, if I don't feel safe, uh, you've only engaged my time, meaning I show up to the salon, I show up to work for one thing and one thing only, and that is to receive a paycheck. But you have not engaged my, my creativity. You're not getting the best out of me. Why? I don't feel safe here. So when, and by the way, well, what does that mean, When Well, if there's gossip in your salon, if your salon is based on that and you allow that, I don't feel safe. If you're gossiping about somebody else in my presence, I'm thinking, gosh, when I'm not around, they're talking about me. I don't feel safe with these people. So you're not going to get the best out of me. The second basic human need, people need to feel that they belong. 60% uh, of people say no one has my back. And by the way, half of them are married. <laughs> what a great opportunity that we have. There, there are people yeah. who they don't feel like they belong even in their own marriages. They don't feel like they belong even in their own homes. They didn't feel like they belonged in high school or in college. 
And sometimes the first time that they finally feel like they belong is working in your salon. Wow, this is where I feel like I belong. I belong here. These are my, mm. these are, are, are my people. This is my tribe. I feel safe here. People need to feel that they belong. And by the way, communication has a lot to do with that. If, if my opinion does not matter to you, then I don't belong here. And if I don't belong, you're not going to get the best out of me. And so communication is, is huge. And communication has to be safe. Uh, we're going to make our mistakes. And that can't be fatal, right? I, I can say the wrong thing. I can do the wrong thing. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's fatal. Uh, so that's a, a huge part of it. And then the third basic human need, people need to feel that they have a purpose. See, if, if we're all showing up just to make money, by the way, making money cannot be your purpose. It's a wonderful uh, byproduct. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make a lot of money. In fact, I believe that people who say that they don't care to make a lot of money would lie about other things as well. So money is very important, but it can't be your why. It can't be your purpose personally or for your business. So your your the, the purpose of your salon is, we want to be good citizens. Yeah, we're here to consume. We consume uh, air. We, we consume water. We consume electricity. We consume trees, right? We, we consume the paychecks of the customers who come into our salon on a regular basis. So all of us are consumers, but we, our purpose is to also be a, a good contributor. Meaning, am I just as concerned with taking my salon profits and putting them back out into the community to make a difference as a good citizen here. And there's many ways that we can do that. Am I just as concerned with, with putting money back, back out into the community as I am with putting money into my own pocket? And, and your customers have that choice. Am I going to choose you? Even though your pricing is the same, the quality of your work is the same in your salon, or I might choose the salon down the street because they're just as good, same pricing, but you know what? They make a difference. They volunteer. They raise money. They, they support the battered women's shelter in town. They, they bring in the Special Olympic kids to celebrate them, to do their hair prior to an event. They recycle. They do wonderful things in their community, and that's where I'm going to spend my money. Yeah. What do you find, you know, that list of things that you just went through then, for example, we, you know, you've been in business for 40 odd years. Uh, so different generations have gone through that time. Societies have changed a lot. People's needs and expectations have changed a lot. What do you find that people want today as employees? What, what are their, what, what are the difference between, you know, the Gen Zs you've got today coming through the school or working in your office compared to the, the people that were there 20 years ago? It is it is a a different generation, and uh, I I truly believe that they are a generation that this is a generation that will bring about wonderful change. I think that they're the catalyst for a lot of wonderful positive things, and it's funny because if you ask the average fifty uh, year old or sixty, I'm sixty two. You ask the average sixty two two year old, hey, tell me about this new generation. Oftentimes, their response is, is a negative one. Oh, this generation, they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't want to work, they want everything for free without having to work for it. And yeah, you could go ahead and believe all of those things, and maybe some of them are true. 
but that's going to be your experience. If, if you believe that, then that's going to be your experience. I choose to see a different side of this generation. I choose to see the side of this generation that uh, they're they're very concerned with with global issues. They're very concerned with giving back and making a difference. They are concerned about spending time with friends and family members. What's wrong with that? Because I come from the generation of you should compromise everything in order to be a good employee, to make money. Compromise your health, compromise your family, compromise your marriage. But hey, you're a good provider, good for you. No, I mean, we want balance as well. And so this generation comes along and they're saying, you know what, maybe I don't want to work five days a week. Can I work four days a week? And get just as much work done in those four days. That way I have an extra day. I, ha- I now have three days a week for myself, for my family, for raising money, for volunteering, for going on a bike ride, for all the other things that I'm passionate about. And so why shouldn't we make those kinds of changes? You know, no, no, no. Around here, we all work five days a week. Well, I, I think we have to be, um, we have to listen to this generation because the, the, the changes that they're bringing about um, are are substantial, and I think it's a it's an exciting time. It, but but we have to pivot, and and they can be the generation that teaches us. It's it's the largest, uh, highest performing generation in history. Yeah, and you've got one of them in your house. <laughs> oh my gosh! Can can she just stay? Can she just stay in in kindergarten? That's all I I wanted, but apparently she wants to grow up. Yeah, good luck with that. Okay. Um, well, you know, last thing, I know we're running out of time here. How do you see the the salon and the school industry evolving over the next sort of five or 10 years? How do you see that changing? Because it's rapid, the change, particularly in the salon business model, the last 10 years uh, has been incredible. So what, what do you see as the future being? I have a feeling that you would be better at answering that question than I would be. Um, I, I see that what I would like to see is that there's more of a connection between uh, graduating beauty school students, brand new people coming into the industry, uh, more of a relationship, a connection to the salon industry. Sometimes the salon industry is just assuming that coming out of school, they're already ready and prepared to be a success in the industry, even though they've been trained for less than a year. Uh, and so I would love to see more mentoring happening between salons and then that, that next generation. Um, I think that it's very, very important for uh, the, this new generation coming into the industry to honor uh, the, the roots of the beauty industry. I love, love, love people such as you and, and icons like Vivian McKinder and, you know, those who come along and they're, they're real, real disciplined and trying to teach about the history of our industry and, and, and the history of hair and the history of, of these wonderful artists and mentors who, who formed companies and, and educational companies. And so I think it's important that this generation honors all of that to know about their history and, and to study all of that, how, what got them to where they are today. Um, so I guess, I don't know that I answered your question. I, I have a lot of hope for what I want to see happen in, in the salon industry and, and happen in the world of education as well. And that is just more of a connection, more of a partnership. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. No, I think it's a great answer. Um, okay. So I know we need to uh, start wrapping up. Whereabouts can people connect with you on uh, Instagram or other social media channels? Uh, just through my name, Win Claybaugh. Uh, I have my, my website is winclaybaugh.com. Uh, my, my Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, it's all just uh, Win Claybaugh. Great. I'll put those links in the uh, show notes on our website, uh, growmysalonbusiness.com. If you're listening to this podcast with Win and have enjoyed it, then do me a favor and share it with those people that you care about because there's lots of wisdom here. So, Win, before we wrap up, have you got any final words for our audience? Yeah, I, I just believe that this industry will give back to you exactly what you put into it. Some people enter this industry with this attitude of give me, give me, give me. They, they, they want all the accolades, all the fame, all the profits, all the followers without doing the work. And, and we have to do the work. And by the way, doing the works doesn't always happen overnight. Maybe what took me 30 years, uh, maybe it's only going to take somebody 10 years to get there, but it still is going to take the 10 years. It's not going to happen overnight. What do they say? You hit one tennis ball and think that you're ready for Wimbledon. Yeah, we still have to put in the work and, and, and putting the work in uh, means that you have to love it, right? If you don't love, love, love this industry, but you're expecting that this industry is going to provide all kinds of dividends for you. I just think that you're trying to trick the universe and, and that, that, that never plays well. That just doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, Wynn Claybaugh, it's been amazing. Uh, just sitting here listening to you and, and looking at you and seeing your passion and enthusiasm for, for life uh, as well as this industry. So I just want to thank you so much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Uh, I've got so many things that I could ask, ask you, which we've run out of time to do. So that just gives me an excuse to invite you back on at another time in the future and, um, and to dig in a bit more because you're absolutely full of wisdom. So Wynn, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Man, it's tr truly an honor, really, to, to see what you have done with using your power and, and influence. You, you could have easily not done this. You could have easily just gathered all of this great information because everybody knows you and everybody wants to share with you. But what you did was you turned around and shared it with the masses. And that's, that's uh, something that I, I hope you're very, very proud of. Thanks, Wynn. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.